Let me begin the sermon today from a very long quotation. But it is so good, I thought I should bring it to your attention. This is what it says. Error, error indeed, is never set forth in its naked deformity. Lest being thus exposed, it should at once be detected. But it is craftily decked out in an attractive dress. So as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced, ridiculous as the expression may seem, more true than truth itself. He's basically saying, look, lies aren't set forth as lies oftentimes. Instead, they're sort of decked out in truth. You know, they're dressed up to give it more curb appeal. So that to the inexperienced person, you you end up looking at it and you say, wow, you know, this is really amazing. It is more true, as if it could be, than truth itself. So wrote a man named Irenaeus. He was a second generation disciple of the Apostle John. That is incredible. Okay, so you got the Apostle John who discipled somebody else who discipled Irenaeus, and we have his writings. Uh, But what he says is insightful, isn't it? Untruth is often decked out as an attractive half-truth. So I wonder, would you as a church member, and, and us as a church as a whole, would we be able to detect doctrinal error? To sort of see past or see through the, the attractive dress and see the lie for what it is. The Apostle John, through the letter of First John, which is what we've been looking at over a number of weeks, you can go ahead and turn there now, he helps us do just that. See through the attractive dress to the lies. And writing to Christians, most likely Christians in the area of Ephesus or modern day Turkey, he encourages readers to hold fast to true Christianity. To know from the true, from the false. And John clarifies for them, as he clarifies for us, what true Christianity is. And he says, just in the book in general, he brings us back around to these three different points. Number one, true Christians obey Christ's commands. So that's a theme that he returns to over and over again. The second thing, true Christians love their brothers. True Christians love their brothers. And then what we look at in our text this morning, true Christians believe in the real Jesus. True Christians believe in the real Jesus, the Son of God, come in the flesh. True Christians believe in the real Jesus, the Son of God, come in the flesh. And our passage today is an encouragement and teaches readers to be doctrinally faithful, discerning the truth from the lie. So go ahead and turn to chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, and I'll go ahead and, turn, I'll go ahead and read that. That's 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Again, he's focusing here, true Christians believe in the real Jesus, the Son of God, come in the flesh. This is what it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. 
Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are, are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the main point, the main point of today's passage is that he wants us to be doctrinally faithful. He says basically be doctrinally faithful by doing two things. Number one, be discerning. And then number two, be teachable. So let's look at the first point. Number one, as we strive to be doctrinally faithful, he says be discerning, test the spirits. Look there, verse one. And this verse here drives the whole entire section that we look at today. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So here there's a warning and a command, right? The, the, the warning is don't believe everything, but test the spirits. And he's sort of sounding the alarm, wake, call, waking up the folks who are doctrinally indiscriminate and calling them to exercise discrimination. Test the spirits. Why the need to test? It says there again in verse 1, because many false prophets have gone into the world. So this call for the church, for the Christians to be discerning, it came at a time when, when some within the church were teaching false doctrines about this Jesus Christ. And they said, look, we claim a Jesus, we follow a Jesus, but Jesus isn't fully God and fully man. Uh, so the problem was that they believed in a Jesus according to their own definition. And we've, we've gone over this before, so uh, bear with me while I repeat this. They formulated a doctrine of Christ that began not with what Jesus said and who he was according to his word. Um, they sort of consulted the world's libraries of ideas and then came up with something that would be palatable to the culture. So there's an evangelistic impulse here in this heresy. That basically says, look, the entire world, they don't, they're not really going to buy this. So we want to make the doctrine of Jesus more palatable to you all, people of the culture. Uh, and this evangelistic impulse actually drove them to heresy. It's fascinating, isn't it? What drives people to heresy? Uh, so this heresy would eventually become known as Gnosticism. Um, and this existed in the early centuries of Christianity. And some think here that John is writing to an underdeveloped form of it. Later on, uh, after the first century, you see some of these streams, uh, they, they really embrace like the, the things above, the spiritual things as good. The material things like our skin and our bodies as bad. So when you come to something like the doctrine of the incarnation, you have the spiritually good taking on the bad. See, you see how that, that, that doesn't really mix with the culture's thoughts of what, what uh, this, this uh, incarnation or what God should do. So then they therefore begin to tweak it. They make it more palatable, easy to swallow. The spiritual actually did not take on the physical. And so therefore Jesus is not fully God and fully man at the same time. So they're decking out this, this, this uh, what they think is the so-called truth. Really, they're taking an untruth and they're giving it lots of curb appeal so that when you guys come across it, you're thinking, ah, that makes a lot of sense. That's good based in my culture. So they're decking out this, these lies in attractive dress. From what we gather, they appear to have won some disciples. So if you read through the book of 1 John, uh, 
they gain followers. That's why John is writing to them, asking them, you know, be on guard from this stuff. And then eventually, when they reach enough resistance from the Christians, they go on and start a false church. So just imagine, you know, if this half took off, started leaving because they taught something else, you know, it would send shockwaves in our little church community. Because you've got these people over here who are saying, no, this, you guys don't have it right. You don't understand who this real Jesus is. And so still feeling the effects of their departure, uh, you know, these Christians might have their foundations rattled a bit. But look how John calms their fears. He, he wants them to be calm and persist in what they've already received. And he says there in chapter 2, verse 19, reassuring them. Go ahead and look there. He, he's, he's saying, look, no one's going to snatch you out of the Father's hand. He says, they, that is the false prophets, they went out from us. They left our body, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, that, if it, that is, if they were really Christians, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So looking at why they are to test these Christians, you know, why they are to test the spirits in the first place, uh, it's because of them. They're challenging the doctrine of Jesus. They're coming up with a new Jesus. And sort of disregarding the real Christ. And you know what John calls these false prophets? He calls them false prophets and even antichrists. Antichrists. I mean, frankly speaking, there are many by their own admission um, who stand against what the Bible says against Jesus. Right? The, the real doctrine of Christ. So here we can think. Uh, and this is by their own self-admission, right? So I'm not being mean by calling them out. They themselves would acknowledge this. So you have Muslims, for example. While they believe that Jesus was a special prophet, uh, he nevertheless was only a prophet. So merely man at the end of the day. Judaism believes that G Jesus was only man. Perhaps closer to home, you have folks who call themselves Christians, or at least this next group. You have Mormonism. Uh, so they believe that Jesus uh, sort of reached and grew up to a, a position of deity. In other words, that, that there was a time when he was not God. But all these things speak so clearly against Scripture. You know, Jesus was God from the beginning. He was with God from the beginning. Let's think about Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. They do, in fact, give a special place to Jesus, saying that Jesus was God's first created being but that he was a created being nonetheless. And they really believe in uh, something very different here. So all these, system of, these systems of belief, they take Jesus and they downgrade his person. Right? The Christianity says, the true Christianity says that Jesus is God. And then all these folks are sort of downgrading him and therefore downgrading his work. And after testing... The Christians are to plainly see that the spirit behind these teachings are not from God. That's what the scripture says here in 1 John. They are, as verse 6 says, of the spirit of error or falsehood, as some of your uh, translations say. But, you know, in the spirit of error, in these teachings, we really see Satan's hand, don't we? You know, he lays out his cards for everyone to see, revealing what his true commitments are. So if you're wanting to know what, what the commitments of Satan are and the devil, uh, what they are, here it is messing with God's truth. 
Okay, so if you think about today, you know, oftentimes some people are, are fearful of the spiritual world, and you therefore are concerned about things like uh, bodiless flying spirits, you know, flying around, things that we cannot see, speaking in words that maybe we can't hear, wreaking havoc amongst people's bodies, you know, making their heads spin around like in poltergeist. But here, according to Scripture, it's plainly obvious what the, what the armies of Satan are dispatched to do. John says, test the spirits according to their teaching. It's interesting, isn't it? Test the spirits according to their teaching. So here, this is, these are audible, real words coming out, out, out of the mouths of real people. Satan here, he's giving us his cards, right? This is, this is where Satan's showing us what his MO, his mode of operation is. So he says, you want to know exactly with, you want to know whether or not what you're dealing with is really of the spirit of God, test the spirits. Look at verse two. By this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So it's fairly straightforward, right? You want to see if, if what you're dealing with is of the demonic? You look at what the demonic confesses. What, is, what do they say about Jesus? What are they writing on their statement of faith? Who do these people actually say that they are? If you say that God is the Son, or that God the Son has come in the flesh, you are in line with God. If you reject it, you are not from God. In fact, you are of the spirit of the Antichrist. You see how fundamentally here, this test that we are supposed to exercise as we test all the spirits, it's fundamentally a doctrine-driven test. A doctrine-driven test. And the leading doctrine of this test is the person and work of Jesus. It boils down to Christ himself. Okay, so some of you guys, um, some of you have run into people who think, well, why cling to these old school beliefs? When we are living in this new school world, why not have the Muslim understanding of Jesus or any other understanding of Jesus? You know, what you say about Jesus, that's okay. Well, what you say about Jesus, that is okay. And, you know, these folks are sort of coming up with a whole, all these different types of Jesuses for all these different types of communities. So you have the Jesus of the marginalized. And the gospel boils down to Jesus reaches out to the marginalized. Jesus doesn't so much save us from our sins or from eternal hell, but instead he shows us how to care and love the marginalized, how you live with love. The man who was ultimately marginalized, who reached out to other people who were marginalized. They're the gospel. Now, those things are actually true, but that's not the gospel. That's not what saves. You have another type of Jesus, the Jesus who is the liberator, a liberationist Jesus. So he is the oppressed one. He came to liberate us from all worldly oppression. So right here, this is strikes some degree of interest in some of you guys. I mean, many of us, either we or our parents or our ancestors are immigrants. And we face even now, you know, we face maybe we feel at least like we are under the thumb of the man. We're facing worldly oppression. And on and on it goes. You have the Jesus of the feminists. You know, they say, they say, well, look at, look at all the, the, the women that Jesus actually reaches out to, which he does. 
And then they say, wow, Jesus is all about the feminist doctrine. You've got the Jesus of the immigrants and so on and so on and so on. So, so many different Jesus. Why not have all of them? And they would say this is the new school Jesus. The problem is, the issue is, not was Jesus marginalized or did Jesus liberate us from worldly oppression. There, I think we would both say, yes, he, he is marginalized. And he, yes, in fact, he does liberate us. But it's interesting, if you read through scripture, you see that liberation actually comes via our death, right? I mean, liberation doesn't actually come here, presently. He says, look, if you want to follow me, you guys be prepared to be under the thumb of the man, whoever you want to define the man is. He says, look, you want to follow Jesus, you will face persecution, but liberation comes as God establishes his kingdom finally in his return, and most of, uh, most of all, liberation comes because he saves us from our sin, especially a slavery to sin. So first and foremost, the issue is that Jesus is a Jesus for sinners, right? He is a Jesus for sinners and he saves us by dying on the cross. So it's not about a new school versus an old school Jesus. And let's say the truths change according to whatever century you sign up for school. We're, what we're dealing with here are God's eternal truths. That's who we're dealing with. The person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, and once you start tweaking the doctrine of Christ, you end up tweaking the gospel. So once you start tweaking the doctrine of Jesus, you tweak the gospel. And as I've used this illustration before, it's kind of like having you know equalizer uh, presets on your stereo so if you push a button everything equalizes you know maybe the treble rises or maybe the bass decreases and if you start messing with the doctrine of jesus you push something that automatically leads you to false gospels and uh a man another man writing in the 12th century this is what he writes uh, and he explains it beautifully he says only a man should die for the sins of mankind only god could die to effectively atone for the sins of mankind and, and we're going to see, as we use that quote, why if you mess with one, you end up losing the gospel, okay? So he says, only a man should die for the sins of mankind. Only God could die to effectively atone for the sins of mankind. So right there, you see already that we need a Jesus who is both God and man. Fully God, fully man. Only a man should die for the sins of mankind. So the guilt of man, right, it only lies at the end of the day with man himself. Because God is just, the punishment of man is always laid on man. It is our sins, right? God created man to be in a relationship with him. They owe their very existence to him, but man then rebelled against him. They sinned against God, earning for themselves just condemnation, ultimately eternal punishment in hell, right? It's our sin. We own it. Now imagine if we sin against this great and holy, righteous being. And God says, you know what? All you guys sin, I'm going to save you guys. And I'm going to take the millions and millions of sins that you have committed against me, against my holy, righteous, eternal character, and I'm going to lay it on an earthworm. All right? These are earthworms that David has hundreds of in his backyard. He's growing them. He grows earthworms. That should tell you to some degree the value of an earthworm. Um, but imagine what would happen if, if that happened. How we would end up conceiving of this great, wonderful, awesome being, supposedly, 
and then the offense of sin, and then who we are. I mean, uh, can you just imagine that? God says, I save all of you guys of such importance, and I lay everything that you've committed against me on an earthworm. The offense of sin must not be a big deal, right? Clearly not, if that's the price that, that I might have had to pay. He sends his earthworm to die for me. And then what do we make of the one that we sin against? Gosh, if this is the, if this is what he does to save us, then he actually must not be that great. He sends, he becomes an earthworm. You know, and then also we end up saying, "Oh, if you know, if that's the cost of my sin, then I'm going to live like this in sin for the rest of my life because that's not a big deal." And if that's not a big deal, he must not be a big deal. And my sin must not be a big deal. If my sins are worth an earthworm's life, what then becomes the depth of love as displayed in this earthworm? Is there really a great love there? What do we make of his grace and his mercy? I mean, in scripture, it talks about the depth of God's love in sending his son. His son who takes on flesh and dies on the cross. But if the Lord moved in such a way where he laid the sins of man on an earthworm, then his love must not be very deep. God is just, and so God's punishment of sin should fall on man himself. Only man should die for sins. The question then becomes, how can one man, one mere man, take away the sins of the world? Millions of sins! Millions of people! How can one man, one mere man, Take away the sins of the world. Because the offense is against the holy and eternal God, right? And one sin against this eternal God then earns for ourselves eternal punishment. Because he himself is eternal. The greater the one you offend, the greater the offense. So how does a mere man take away the eternal weight of the sins of mankind? The answer is he can't. He cannot. He is finite. He is not eternal. That's why this person ends up saying only God could die to effectively atone for the sins of mankind. Only man should die, but here only God could die to effectively atone for the sins of mankind. Who else is there to bear this eternal weight, the eternal wrath of God, but the righteous and eternal God himself? This here was God's plan to send his son who is fully God and who became fully man to die on the cross for sins. This is why the writers of scripture write in the way they do. It is through Christ that we have salvation. So first John chapter two, go ahead and turn there. This beautiful verse, uh, verses one to two. It reads there, I'll pick up in the middle of one. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what this means, propitiation, is where we were supposed to bear God's wrath. He sends his son, Jesus, to bear the wrath for us. And now God, because of this great transaction, ends up looking at us with great favor. Everyone who repents and believes, that is, and sees the righteousness of his son covering us. And in so doing, we are, and in believing, 
by grace through faith we are saved. So John says, friends, test the spirits. You mess with one part, you mess with it all. You know, perhaps one of the most one of the most helpful things you can do to grow in your discernment is to just simply not assume that just because someone says that they follow Jesus automatically means they actually are Christians or that they automatically mean uh, it means that they automatically believe the Bible. So I'm not saying this again to be mean here. I mean, we do this all the time. We discern and exercise this discernment all the time. So here in our conversations, we just need to clarify here. So we clarify all the time on so much less significant issues in order to help other people understand, right? We want to bring understanding, and so we help clarify. So, for example, there are two Jeremys here. There's one Jeremy. There's another Jeremy. Um, If your friend, let's say you guys come to the church, and your friend says, uh, you know, the preacher's wife is Jesse, or the preacher is the guy with the mustache, would you not help your friend and then say to them, uh, no, actually, that's not the preacher's husband. Or, sorry. <laughs> you say, that's not the preacher. That's not the preacher's wife. You, 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 in effort to bring clarity, you end up saying, no, actually, you're confused. And you might do it politely, but nevertheless, you hold out the truth and clarity uh, at the end of the day. And we would do that in a heartbeat, right? No, actually, that's not, that's not you're, you're thinking of the wrong Jeremy. We do that in a heartbeat. But for some reason, we insist on letting others live in confusion about Jesus. You know, we just sort of keep our mouths quiet. You know, if, you know, the, the, our, our Muslim friends, the people that we love are saying, oh, Jesus is not God. But here, what we're dealing with is not, you know, some fictional character that everyone has the right to, to define for themselves. We're dealing with God's eternal truth. And actually bringing clarity shows our care and concern for God. And for the person, right? We don't want them to stand before the real Jesus only for them to hear him say, depart from me. You never knew me and I never knew you. And so we want to bring clarity. And what ought to make us care about doctrine is also the fact that the devil himself gives a lot of time to bringing God, bringing down God and his truth. Right. So if we know that Satan and his armies are giving themselves to analyzing the truths of God and bringing them down, how could we take a slouched position to God's truth and say, yeah, you know what? I just don't have time to do these things. I I love Jesus, though. I'm all about Jesus. I'm all about who he is and what he's done. Satan himself is the father of lies. In scripture, God says that we are at war with this person. Jesus says that when he lies, he lies out of his own character. It's his very nature to lie. His deceitful, two-faced, duplicitous words reveal just how faithful he is at carrying out his mission to bring down God and mar his truths. What are the devil's first words that we read of in the Garden of Eden? He says to the woman that God created, did God really say such and such? I mean, in light of the devil's commitment to falsifying and distorting doctrine, let us not be slow or lazy in strengthening our own. Doctrine matters. And John says, test the spirits. Don't believe everything, but test them. 
So as we think about the the context, you know, still feeling the aftershocks of all of many of their friends leaving. There is no doubt that they felt a threat. And these false prophets, they posed a certain threat to the church. And so John urges them, be discerning, test the spirits. And then to prevent the church's fears from sort of taking flight, John grounds the church in the reality that they, in fact, have the sure foundation of God in what God has already revealed, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel. They only need to remain teachable to it. Be teachable, he says. This brings us to point number two. If the church is to remain faithful in doctrine, they are, they are to be discerning and they also are to be teachable. This is point number two, verses four to six. Look there. He says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Then he says, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. And he says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the Christians are first to be teachable. They are to be teachable first to the apostles. And that's the most obvious here. Right? As he gets to verse six, he says, listen to us. We are from God. This is in verse six. And if you know God, you will listen to us. And if you don't know us, if you don't listen to us, you prove yourself to not know God. You know, the apostles, they were uniquely used of God. It was a unique time. God was moving in a unique way so that what the apostles preached and then what the apostles wrote, those things were authoritative. They came from the authority of God and God was using the apostles to build the foundation of the church. And you can hear the authority. I mean, if, uh, just listen to John 20, verses 30 to 31. You hear the authority as John, the same John who wrote this letter. He's writing his gospel about Jesus. This is, what, this is what he says. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. That's authority. We write these things to you so that you would believe and know for certain that Jesus is God, the son come in the flesh. And then turn to first John chapter five, verse 13. This is what he says. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So in the gospel in John chapter 20, he's saying, I'm writing these things so that you would believe. And then here he writes with the same authority, he says, I write these things to you that you may know that you have the eternal life, that you that what you have is for certain. And there is no question that the authors of scripture here understand themselves to be writing with the aver- with the very authority of God here. And so they say, be teachable. Let, let's turn to some other verses here. First, Peter one. Go ahead and turn there. First, Peter one. Verses 20 to 21. It says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, we don't have the authority. We don't have the right to say it means one thing to me and one thing to another person. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke of God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here the words that we have in the Bible are Holy Spirit generated words. Now certainly he uses people to do that, but here they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Another verse is worth turning to, 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. And the reason why we're going through these verses is because the apostles are saying to, John is saying to the Christians, he says, look, be teachable to us and the word. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So here this isn't produced by man, ultimately. This is breathed out by God himself. So that what we have here are the very words of God. And then to obey them is to obey God. And to deny them is to deny God himself. That's the clear implications here. Now you may be asking the question, well, isn't he talking about the Old Testament? Because he didn't have the New Testament during that time. I mean, they were in the process of writing the New Testament. Another important verse, turn to 2 Peter 3.16. here we're just camping out on the authority of scripture here we all should be teachable to the apostles word and all of scripture that's why we're going through these things peter here he's encouraging the christians to persevere and peter says in second peter three sixteen, he says count the patience of our lord as salvation and then he says this is where we want to focus here just as our beloved brother paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him so imagine you guys are receiving the letter of Paul to you guys. And I say, look, you, you guys believe these things just as Paul already wrote to you, right? So obviously Peter encourages the Christians to hold fast, not only to his own word as he writes to them, but also the apostle Paul's. And then look, continue looking at 2 Peter 3.16. He says, there are some things in them, that is Paul's writings, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable, that is those who teach false doctrine, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So what he has in his mind that just as the false prophets are twisting Paul's letter to you guys, they do that with the other scriptures. So immediately the Old Testament and Paul's writings are on par. Both would be the scriptures, you know, the set, the set uh, letters that they have received throughout history and throughout time. So clearly these things, what we have here are official in terms of authority god's authority behind them so the christians are to be teachable to them uh but you know what this is really key the christians are to remain teachable to the apostles only insofar as they preach the true gospel message the christians that is we too are to remain teachable to the apostles only insofar as they preach the true gospel message now, of course, the, the, the office of apostle doesn't exist today. We have pastors. Uh, so no one is going to say, even people who say that they do follow apostles, that they are striving to be evangelical, uh, they're not going to say that their apostles receive God's word as in it is authoritative divine revelation from God that ought to be added to the Bible. Nobody says that. Uh, usually these denominations that have apostles, they're just sort of like, 
more or less uh, very competent church planters or something like that, or leaders. Okay, so the Christians were to be teachable to the apostles only because they were entrusted with the gospel message. This is why the gospel is, co- is sometimes called the apostolic gospel. And it's really important to note that the preacher's authority, so my authority, is necessarily derived from and rooted in the truthfulness of my message. Which really isn't my message at all, it's supposed to be God's message. So as it is with the apostles, so it is with, t- so it is with us today. We, if we lose the message, we lose authority. If I strip the message of its truth, you are to strip me of authority and say, no, you no longer have authority over us. So my authority is rooted in, Pastor Rick's authority is rooted in the true message. If that is gone, then so should our leadership in this church. I mean, but, so it helps us understand verse 6. Go ahead and turn there, First John chapter 4, verse 6. Because, you know, taken out of context, you could end up reading this verse and say, man, this guy has an ego trip. You know, he's all about tribalism. Don't listen to them, you only listen to us. Um... But that's not what it's about here. He's calling for ultimate devotion. Your devotion today, your devotion and loyalty to be placed not with them as people apart from the message, but to be placed on them insofar as they treat, uh, teach the true message. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and he has indeed come in the flesh. That message is from the spirit of truth. So not only were they to be teachable to the apostles insofar as they taught the true gospel message, they were ultimately to be teachable to the spirit. Christians ultimately are to be teachable to the spirit of truth. And that's a term used for the Holy Spirit. The spirit of Jesus will always affirm the truths about Jesus. So this is a theme that uh, John refers to earlier and he returns to it again. In our passage today, but go ahead and look at the earlier section where he refers to it. Chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. <clears throat> he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and his true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. So there, this talking about the anointing, that's all talking about the spirit. And we receive the anointing when we are converted, when we actually profess faith, a genuine faith in Jesus Christ and believe on him. So then we receive this anointing. And chapter four, go ahead and picks it up. Uh, it talks about, uh, you know, being from God. We are from God. So what he's talking about is being born again. Or the doctrine of regeneration. And in the rest of his letter, John refers to the Christians as children of God. He refers to them as being born of God, who received the new birth by the Spirit of God. And these terms, all of them speak about the origins of the child of God. We have God as our Father, right? Because we have the Spirit. So you are either from God or you are from the world or of the world. And he says there that this spirit has helped us overcome the world. That's why he says, uses this language of overcoming. And then he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So here Christians overcome the world by rejecting the spirit of error. And then by clinging to the spirit of truth. So John here, he's just encouraging them. Look, persevere. The things that you have received, continue in. And that's what he says. You don't need anyone to teach you. That is, we don't, you don't need this new doctrine over here that these new folks are trying to teach you. 
It says, you don't need anyone to teach you, but the abiding, but continue to dwell in things that you have received. So as we seek to apply these, these uh, points to our lives and this passage to our lives, it's important to realize that it's not only the first century Christians who need to be on guard against false doctrine. Um, who need to, as the book of Jude says, contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. So the question for you all, all are, uh, is, what are you doing to strengthen your powers of discernment according to the word of God? What are you guys practically on a day-to-day level doing to strengthen your powers of discernment according to the word of God? Because that's, you know, that's what this passage is calling us to be teachable to, the word of God. In the word, we have the the writings of God himself, breathed out by God, written by men who were carried along by the spirit. And we have the true gospel. So we got a few encouragements here to help us all remain teachable to scripture and develop doctrinal discernment. Number one, plain and obvious, read scripture. Read scripture. One of the best ways to guard against false teaching, as we mentioned last time, is to know the real thing. So read the word. Let's just do a little mental test here to see how familiar you are with it. Uh, it'd be fascinating to know. Don't answer. Don't raise your hand. Don't blurt it out out loud. Just think about this, the answer in your head. But what would you say is the main point of Galatians? If you're a Christian, what, do you, what would you say the main point of Galatians is? And if you're struggling to answer that, Chances are, you know, you would benefit, well, not chances are, you certainly would benefit from strengthening your understanding of Scripture. So the question is, do you read it? What's the point, what's the main point and the main themes covered in Romans? How about the book of Philemon? If you don't read Scripture regularly, let me encourage you guys to start. And keep in mind here that the Word of God is the revelation of God. You know, it's, it's kind of sad, you know, as I've looked at my Christian life in the past, there have been times when like a new magazine might come out, a new issue, and I'm more excited to get that, the magazine issue to go ahead and buy it or receive it in the mail than I am to pick up the Word of God. So I used to be a personal trainer at one point in time, <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I wanted to be a bodybuilder. So when Flex Magazine would come out, I'd be really interested to see, you know, what these guys' workout plans are and stuff like that. But I wasn't so interested in knowing what Romans had to say or how Paul talks about uh, how physical exercise is of benefit, but spiritual exercise is even better. So keep in mind here, as the Bible sits next to you on your shelf, that what we have here are the very words of God. If you're looking for somewhere to start, how about reading First John over and over and over again until we're done with this series? You know, can you imagine how much more you would know the book of First John? Really, how much more you would know what basic Christianity looks like and how important it is to believe in the right doctrines of Jesus, how important it is to love the brothers, how important it is to obey Christ's commands. And that would just, we would just say, yeah, of course, it's so obvious. That's what the Apostle John says. That's what God says is real Christianity. So let me encourage you, just continue reading First John over and over and over again. Until the day that we finish it. Then we're going to go back to Genesis in the summertime. And then we can continue reading Genesis. Um, Or if you're looking for somewhere to start again. Go ahead and read Romans for the month of May. So read it as many times as you can. The book of Romans. And And then set yourself out to summarize the book of Romans in one sentence. In the book of Romans the Apostle Paul argues that blank. And just fill it in. 
And then when you're done with that, at the end of the month of May, you know, come back and say, okay, Jeremy, I'm ready for my next book. What should I study for the month of June? And then I'll give you another book. And then you can go ahead and read it over and over again, learn to summarize the contents in one sentence. We can talk about it. We can do it together. And that certainly will help us um, understand Scripture more and by God's grace remain teachable to it. Another thing you can do here is, uh, in order to be teachable, <clears throat> is to listen attentively to sermons. Now, some of you guys are very good at listening listening attentively to sermons. Others of you, that you might not be so much. Uh, but let me encourage you guys to do that and attend to it. So when a preacher preaches the God's word to you, keep in mind that these are, this is God's appointed means to feed the church corporately. Now, that automatically means that I, all of a sudden... Uh, am doing something with great weight. That's why the Bible says I'm going to be judged on a different scale than people who don't teach. Now, that's a serious thing. But as you listen attentively, don't merely assume that what I'm saying is of the Bible. Don't assume that what I say is of the Bible. No, you should, you should uh, take notes. You should go back and study. What, what is it that Jeremy and Pastor Rick preach from, from the Bible? And is it, is it accurate? Does it actually line up with the Old Testament, with the New Testament? You should be like the Bereans were in the book of Acts, uh, who tested everything to see if it was according to the word of God. That will be of benefit to you. And you would actually be remaining teachable to the word and your pastors insofar as we get the message of God right. Another thing, read books on theology and doctrine. So these are really utterly practical here. This is like the street view application. Um, study up on doctrine and theology. Okay, so just think, wh wh where is an area in your mind that you feel you're weak on theologically in terms of doctrine? Why not take the rest of 2014 to read various books on certain topics that you'd like to study up on? So maybe you want to learn more about the word of God. You can take the rest of the year to read about the word of God. I give you books if you want to. Maybe you want to know the differences of what it means to be saved in, let's say, the Roman Catholic understanding and the Protestant understanding. I can give you books on that. You can take the rest of 2014 to go ahead and study up on that. Maybe you want to know what the Mormons up the street actually believe about Jesus. And then you can compare. You can think about the Mormon doctrine of Christ and then uh, the Bible's doctrine of Christ. And then you would be more competent in your theology and doctrine. All of that in effort to test the spirits to know whether or not what they are teaching is true or false. Another thing you can do here, um, you know, these are called tracks. So this is called two ways to live, the choice we all face. Now in here, you have uh, doctrine, solid doctrine, as we are taught how to present the gospel in a very easy way, a straightforward way with pictures, very useful. I've drawn out these pictures a number of times. And in here, there's doctrine in it. Okay, so I'm going to give... Five of them away right now, if you raise your hand. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, David. There you go. And then I got uh, three. Dos formas de vivir. La decisión que todos enfrentan. I do genuinely want to... to Spanish. That was my attempt. Okay, two more. Come on. You guys got friends that speak Spanish? There you go. So taking those things and studying them, you know, you're actually equipping your, your mind 
and you're serving your soul as you are reminded of gospel truths, and it helps you understand more what the true message of Jesus is. So read books on theology and doctrine, and keep in mind here, this ultimately is not merely about doctrine. It's not merely about words on a page or words on scripture. What we're dealing with here is salvation. You change one thing, you end up tweaking it all here. That's what's at stake. Eternal souls in terms of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you have not believed, let me encourage you to examine. And if you are understanding and you're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ today for the first time, let me encourage you to repent and believe that is turn from your sins and believe on Jesus Christ who saves because of his great work that he alone could accomplish. Fully God, only God could accomplish salvation and fully man, only man should die for the sins of mankind. So repent, turn from your sins and believe, and you will indeed, as God promises, have forgiveness of sins and right standing with God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do give you thanks and we recognize that you are a gracious God. We thank you that you in your grace have given us your word. And so we're not groping in the dark as if we don't know which way to go. But Lord, you give us the way to salvation. You give us where we can know how to be saved. And you show us the way in your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you in fact shined light in a very dark place. We thank you, Lord, that those of us who have repented and believed, Lord, that you certainly have shined your light in our hearts enabling us to believe so lord we pray that as we engage with others and test the spirits and not believe everything lord we pray that we would do so with grace and with great love and that we would want to bring clarity to a very confused world give us boldness we pray just as aurora was mentioning how she wanted to be bold and have time to share the gospel with her sister so lord we pray that we too would be bold and loving And recognize once again that what is at stake ultimately is the eternal state of souls. In your name we pray. Amen.